Go ahead and turn to James chapter 4. If you're joining us for the first time uh, and you have a device, we go through the ESV, English Standard Version, so that'll get you tracking with us. Um, James chapter 4. Man, well, we, the last couple of weeks, James has been bringing us through uh, the idea of, well, I shouldn't say idea. When I say idea, it sounds like it's debatable, but he's been bringing us through the truth of these two wisdoms that exist for us, the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. And wisdom, just to sort of uh, reset ourselves with the definition of wisdom, wisdom is what we do with the knowledge God has given to us from his word. So God imparts knowledge to us from his word. Wisdom is what do you do with that knowledge? It's not just meant to sit up here. It's meant to drop to our hearts and then come out of our hands. We always say that it's this head, heart, hands kind of trifecta um, in the way that knowledge and wisdom is supposed to work together. So wisdom is sort of the the outflow of the the practical knowledge that we get uh, from, from God. And so that's really what we've been learning about in the book of James uh, since last September. And so two weeks ago, we unpacked what James called the wisdom from below, which he said in no uncertain terms is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom uh, that has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition at its root. And the result is that it ends up in disorder and every vile practice, James said. And then last week, James contrasted that wisdom from below with the wisdom from above, which he said is characterized by the heart of Jesus. And so we think of wisdom characterized by the heart of Jesus. What do we think about? Well, James kind of laid it out. He said it's, it's pure, first off. And then he said it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial and sincere. And he said, and the fruit of this wisdom is that there will be a harvest of righteousness. With James says, one of the ways we know that a harvest of righteousness, it, we're bringing that in, is that it's sown in peace by those whose intent in uh, living out this kind of wisdom is to make peace. So, so James, what he's doing is that he's describing what a Christian community, what a local church is supposed to look like from the inside out. And remember last week we talked about it, that in the same way that we plant a vegetable garden, one of the things I like about this time of the year, um, with the exception of the sun, which just like totally lifts my mood, like it lifts all of your moods, even though it's still, I don't know, like minus 10 outside. Um, but, but one of the thing I, things I like is that Melissa always comes and says, hey, what do we want to plant in the vegetable garden this year? Such a hopeful question. You know, normally I'm I'm hoping she asks me like what kind of burger I want that night, but then she says, what kind of vegetables do we want in the garden? Something that's going to be, I don't know, just a little bit better for my health. Um, But in the same way that we plant that vegetable garden, those those gardens we're getting ready to plant, we want to do it in such a way that what it produces is plentiful and beautiful and delicious, right? So the community of Christ, this church, substance church, it needs to be tilled and planted and watered and weeded and spiritually gardened in such a way that what comes through the ground is something appetizing and healthy and good to eat. If that's not what's happening at Substance Church, then what we're going to have is what we see right now in our gardens, which is just a bunch of dead roots 
and plants and just this hard, frozen soil that exists right now in all of our vegetable beds. You know, one of the um, jobs that Melissa and I have uh, is caring for pastors and their wives as part of our church planning network that we're in called Harbor. And man, I, I wish that you could hear some of the stories that come from them right now, man, because it's just devastating. When we talk about the, the state of churches, comparing a church to a garden and thinking about the kind of soil that's lying there right now, some of these stories are devastating. Some churches have experienced just these mass exoduses over the past year because of things like masks, um, because the church has to suspend services or they've had to suspend services because the pastor encouraged the church to love their neighbors and members of the church felt like he was making a political statement when he said, love your neighbors. You know, um, I'm not being passive aggressive in that. Those are the stories that we're getting from all corners of the United States. The last year is seeing the church in a lot of ways in certain pockets become like that winter garden that I just described, right? So we stand back and we go, okay, that, that makes sense. That, that allows me to understand then what wisdom and the kind of wisdom that James is encouraging us to live out, how vital and important that is for us and how seriously we need to take the way that we are receiving that type of wisdom and then living it out, right? So what James does as we begin chapter four is he, he unpacks what bitter jealousy and selfish ambition looks like in the churches that he was writing to. What James is going to call out today are the passions that war within our hearts due to unresolved covetousness that results ultimately in a prayerlessness. And what James is describing is the mess that many churches find themselves in today. And yet, there has to be a yet, right? And yet, there's hope for us not to fall prey to our warring passions so that some of these gardens that are still in this winter state can be retilled, right, resoiled. We can still see this beautiful vegetables and fruit that God wants to grow and cultivate what he calls the church can still pop up through the soil. There's still spring on the horizon. It's still coming, there's still so much hope for everything that we have in terms of what God has for us. But first, here's the gruesome reality, chapter 4, verse 1. This is what he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I'm just going to end it there because I wanted to end it in what looks like just the, the most hopeless state possible um, right there. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4. I remember uh, this was going on oh, a couple of decades ago now. We had just... Uh, we had just come into a new church, and um, we'd become members of that church, and we got to experience our first members meeting at that church, and we were, we were hyped about that. We didn't know what to expect, but we did know this, is that they were, they were submitting a, a name change to the church, and the name of the church when we started there was 
Corona Evangelical Free Church of America, longest church name in the history of church names. So when we found out what they wanted to change it to, which was a shorter name, we were like, well, I don't know, that just makes sense, right? I mean, you gotta be able to remember the church you're driving to, you know, twice a week. And um, so they just had this really great name. I'm hesitant to say the name, I don't know. But it was a short, good name, right? And um, I remember we go into this meeting and we're sitting down and we're like, well, this is gonna be a piece of cake, man. We're just gonna do this name change thing and we're looking at the tables in the back that had all these goodies and you know me, I mean, I want some dessert. And I'm just thinking, man, I, I'm already loving this whole setup already. And literally this meeting two hours later had erupted into all the people in the church that were just, in, like, just incensed about the fact that they wanted to change the name of the church from the longest name in the history of the church into something a little more palatable and a little more focused um, and a little more gospel-centered. And I think we walked away from that meeting saying, what just happened? Why is everybody so angry about a name change? And wait a minute, aren't they supposed to just sort of come together and figure this out and do this? It's a name. It's a, it's a name. And yet what we found out is that the church is not beyond fighting and quarreling about things that I think some of us would stand back and go, we're fighting and quarreling over that. And so that kind of brings us into what James is talking about a little bit here, which is that worldly passions, we have the potential and we have worldly passions that become at war within us. That's what he's saying uh, when we when we jump right in here to verses one and two, and that's our first point, we have worldly passions at war within us. Well, what are, what are passions? Because that can be all over the map, right? Sometimes we're like, man, I'm passionate about this thing and it's a good thing. That's not wrong, is it? And then we think about passions in a negative sense, like, man, I, I have a passion that's sort of out of line with the passions of Christ. Well, another word for passions here that James is really saying is pleasures, right? Which, by the way, doesn't, necessarily mean that's a bad word either, but this is what he's saying. He's saying it's when personal pleasure becomes our driving passion that it creates a war within us, right? So it's not that passions are bad. It's not that pleasures are bad because God gave us both passions and pleasures. It's when they become the driving force of our lives that they create a particular kind of war within us, James is saying. Paul said in Romans 6.12, he said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So passions become sort of like the, the master of our lives if they're only derived from the personal pleasure that we're trying to receive from those things, right? Titus 3.3 says, man, you've become slaves now to various passions and pleasures, so we got to be careful about what those passions, what those pleasures are, so that they don't become something that are master over us. Paul says in Romans 7, 5, he says, for, for while we were living in the flesh in our sinful passions, so those are a type of passions, sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So there's one kind of fruit that results when a person or a church is seeking their own passions and pleasures at any and all costs. And the fruit is not gonna be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. It's gonna be a different kind of fruit. It's gonna be a fruit that ultimately has its roots, Paul says, in death. 
right? That's where everybody gets a little quiet because that's uncomfortable because he doesn't give us any middle ground with that, does he? Dr. Kent Hughes says it like this. This is helpful the way he describes what's going on here with uh, James talking about the passions at war within us. He says, this in turn fosters a self-focus that naturally diminishes the importance of others and enthrones one's pleasures as the goal of life. Then he says, this brings relational war with those around us, especially others in the church. Such narcissistic embrace of one's own pleasure as the chief end of life, whether it be sensual, materialistic, professional, or positional, is the bane of the church. So the church James is writing to had developed worldly passions that were now at war within them and who was suffering but everybody around them. The church body was suffering as the result. And so the warning for us is that we indeed do have worldly passions at war within us, which point number two causes covetousness and contentiousness. So the result of wanting what they didn't have, these churches, created a culture of fighting and quarreling in the church. James tells us that their coveting had reached a point that people were being murdered, which is the epitome of the kind of disorder and vile practices James mentions in chapter 3. I don't know, that, that seems like the, the epitome of selfish am- ambition, right, and bitter jealousy. When somebody is actually losing their life because the level of jealousy and ambition has reached a fever pitch to where you have to end somebody else's life to attain and get what you want, it feels like that's even saying that that just jumped the shark is putting it too lightly, right, at this point. It almost seems hard to believe that that could happen that things had reached such a place in this church with the level of infighting and quarreling that people were actually being murdered by others in the church because they weren't getting or attaining what they want. It's hard to actually believe that until you remember stories like David and Bathsheba and Uriah in the Old Testament, right? Remember that? Remember when David had to kill Uriah? the husband of Bathsheba because he had gotten Bathsheba pregnant and he had to do what he had to do to cover up and obtain what he actually wanted due to the passion and the lust that was in his heart. It happens. It's possible. And still we look around and we say, thank God that doesn't happen here to that degree, but I wonder if we shouldn't be so glib about that and look at some of the warning signs. John tells us in 1 John 3.15, he said, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we understand that when we talk about murder, it can be literal murder, but can also be a type of murder that results in the fruit of our heart that has such hatred and envy and jealousy and personal ambition against the well-being of somebody else, that it's like we're destroying them. Jesus says it in Matthew 5, 21. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, right? It's getting us back to the 10 commandments and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. What Jesus and what James are doing, which is what we try to do here every week, is he drills down into what actually is going on in the heart. And he's saying even to be angry with your brother or your sister, it's saying something about what you feel that they have that you don't have, a situation that God has designed that you want him to redesign that he's not redesigning. Does that make sense? Envy and covetousness, it's rooted in an anger against your brother and sister for wanting what you haven't been given by God. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. Contentment says, Lord, I I thank you for what I have, for what you've given me, and that you don't withhold any good thing from me. And I can see that even the hard things in my life or the things that you've withheld from me are ultimately for my good. And I'm, I'm growing in contentment over that because I trust in your character to never hand me something that is ultimately going to do me harm. Right? That's contentment. Covetousness is the opposite of that. Contentment finds its source in godliness. But covetousness, on the other hand, is like murder because of the kind of discontented passion that it exposes in our hearts. Man, that's, there's just so much there, isn't there? When we go back to the story of Cain and Abel, remember that in Genesis chapter four, it says that Cain was angry with his brother Abel. Why? Well, because God had accepted Abel's sacrifice, but rejected his. And that was because his sacrifices, Cain's, were coming from a heart that sought his own pleasures before God. So what was the result of that? Well, Cain ends up murdering Abel. It's, it's, the, first, it's the first picture we have in Scripture of somebody being murdered. Cain murders his brother Abel. He desired what he didn't have, but could have had if the passions of his heart would have been realigned with the passions of God. So you can trace the contentiousness that kind of erupts from our mouths to the covetousness that is lurking in our hearts. We want what we don't have, so we fight and quarrel because the pleasures and the passions of our heart are self-seeking. Why is this? Because number three, we approach God like consumers. We approach God like consumers. James says, first off, he says um, in verse three, you don't have because you don't ask. So essentially, this pleasure seeking results in prayerlessness or or what I'm going to call a consumer approach to prayer. So what, what do we know about being a consumer? All of us are consumers, right, in some ways. Be, being a, a consumer isn't inherently bad. Like I bought strawberries at the market yesterday. I was a consumer, and they were delicious. Um, but, but that was, but not, we don't just say the word consumer and automatically want to draw something wrong or bad from that. But, but let's get just sort of a, a really good working knowledge and definition about what it means in this context. So a, a consumer is someone who purchases exactly what they want, when they want it, in order to satisfy a desire. Again, even in that, nothing wrong, wanted those strawberries, got those strawberries, ate those strawberries last night, Right? 
When you want something, let's just say when you want a couch, what do you do? You shop for it, you compare prices for the kind of couch you want, and then you purchase the couch, right? As a consumer, the only reason you have a relationship with the salesperson at the furniture store is to get the couch you want for the best price possible. Unless you have a daughter who works at a furniture store like I do, and this illustration is being destroyed for me now. Um, the point is that I'm describing what a consumer relationship looks like, what the intention behind it actually is. What this verse implies, by the way, is that we have a father who desires us to come to him not like a consumer, but like a child who asks him for everything. Let's turn to Luke 11. We've probably turned to this verse a thousand times. Here's 1001. Luke 11, verse 5. Make a hard left. After the book of Mark, before the book of John. Some of you are remembering two weeks ago when I did this and I brought you to the wrong verse and I could never recover. I think I have the right one. Luke 11, verse 5. Jesus is speaking and he says, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Verse nine. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What a phenomenal verse for us when we hear James saying, you have not because you ask not. So James says we don't have these things that are causing all of this fighting and quarreling due to covetousness in us. He says, first off, baseline is that we don't even go to God to ask. Therefore, we don't have some things because we don't ask, which means according to Jesus, number one, we mischaracterize the heart of our Father in heaven. We are just thinking wrongly about what it means to go before God and ask him for those things that we desire, for those things that we want, for those things that we need. And then secondly, um, it also could be that we do know him well enough, and we know him well enough to know he's not going to grant us those envious pleasures so that our lives become a greater exercise in prayerlessness. We get that about God. We're afraid to go to God to ask him for things that have captivated and captured our heart to the degree that we already know they're not good for us. And so what do we do? Well, we back away from God. We become people who are prayerless instead of prayerful. 
But Jesus says this. He says, just like an earthly father who wants to give good gifts to his kids, he says, how much more will our heavenly father give his children what's good for them? Remember those three words. I think those are important for us, not in terms of like kind of fulfilling our sense of like we want more, but, but, that, but those three words, how much more, right? How we define the word more, because when we typically think of the word more, we think of volume, don't we? How much more? And by the way, God is a God of volume and blessing and extravagant, but the more really keys us in onto how God defines more of something that is going to be what's best for us. And the thing that he wants to give us not just more of, but most of, is something that's not going to leave us in a state of constant carnal craving and discontentedness. So when we think of a father who who wants to give us that much more, it's just cluing us in. It's reminding us of the heart of this father, right? How much more? By the way, the more also includes withholding whatever is not good for us because even a decent earthly father, a five out of 10 dude, right? won't give his kids things that are not good for them, right? Do, do we get that? I, I think you guys get that. Like none of you dads are buying like light sockets, knives, and ovens for your kids. You're not doing that. They want those things, right? But my child has been dreaming of light sockets and metal forks for his birthday, Ronnie, because all of his friends have them and like electrocution is like the cool thing now, right? Like I get that. I get that your kids are that crazy. What's up, kids? Right? But a consumer approach to God and all of this ridiculousness, what it's doing is it's mischaracterizing his heart, right? Just like your kids would be mischaracterizing your heart, moms and dads, if you said, sorry, man, the, the light socket and the fork, just not going to wrap that thing up for you this year. Well, I don't believe you love me. I don't believe you have what's best for me. It's actually just the opposite, right? And then James says, secondly, when you do ask... If you do ask, you ask wrongly, he said, to spend on your own passions. And what this means is that what we ask for is a window into the desires of our heart. Asking wrongly means requesting those things that feed your envy, feed your lust, which in turn create a culture of war inside and outside instead of a culture of peace inside and outside. How much more will God give his children good things when they don't ask wrongly? John 14, 13, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when we come to this place where the deepest desires and passions and pleasures of our heart is to ask God for things, ask God for things that give him the most glory, that's the how much more of those things that he's going to provide. Those are the good things that he will not withhold from us. That's like why when we pray for these things, when we do our call to worship, and when Scott is praying during the liturgy, what we're doing in those moments, when we're praying that God would give us more mercy and more grace, guess what? He's going to give us those things because those are the things that give him most glory and end up being for our greatest 
good. I remember when I first started getting an allowance, that bright, shining, golden moment in a kid's life when I first got an allowance for doing chores, which I think was like a dollar because my dad didn't understand that the minimum wage had gone up since the 1940s, right? Um, But I used to wait all week to get that dollar so I could spend it on, wait for it, Mexican jumping beans, right? That's, that was a passion of my, of my heart at four. Um, and one day, um, dad said, you know, Ronnie, you don't always have to spend your money the minute you get it. He said, you should save it for something better than Mexican jumping beans. He said, and better yet, even spend it on others. Like me, I'm kidding, he never told me to spend it on him. But if you knew my dad, he may have, I don't remember that. In other words, we ask for those things that will ultimately not bring peace to our hearts, but continue to keep our appetites fed and our passions at war. What kind of a father would God be if he said yes to those requests, right? What kind of a father would God be if he said yes to those things that would do nothing but just feed our passions and increase the fighting and the quarreling and the covetousness in our hearts? So we have to look very closely at what it is that James is trying to tell us about the warring passions within us. Because we want to ask, like, what are the implications of this for us? I mean, do we just stop coveting? I mean, is the the answer here going, hey, Substance Church, I love you. I do. I'm your pastor, I am. So here's two things I need you to do. Stop coveting, and man, just make sure you don't murder anybody this week. Let's pray, go, right? I mean, what do, we, what do we do with something like this? And yes, I don't want you to covet or murder, but what is the central message and theme here? What is James trying to impart here for us that is wisdom? I think it's this, it's one thing. It's moving from prayerlessness to prayerfulness. That's what he's driving at when we get to the end of verse 3. The answer is not to become stingy with what you bring before God, right? But to bring him everything. Do you understand that? The answer is to bring him all of your passions in all of, their, in, in all of the, the, the shape and in all of the condition that they're in. We go before God because he's that kind of a God that can handle all of the misaligned passions and pleasures that exist in my heart right now and exist in your heart right now. So the answer here is not to say, all right, well, if I'm asking wrongly, I just want to pull back. No, it's just the opposite. We want to push in even harder and further because this is what we know about what God does to our desires. Your desires will be changed as you bring them before the Lord. That's the encouraging thing about not letting your passions and your pleasures keep you at distance from God, but allow those things, whatever they are, as to not mischaracterize who God is, to allow them to bring you closer to him because you know he's a good father. Because you know he's a good father. So if if envy, if just getting your own way, if covetousness, if it seems to rule your heart, Bring that. Bring those desires, those passions, those pleasures before your Father in heaven, who, by the way, listen, this might be the most important thing that you hear this morning. He is not repelled by you when you bring them to him. In fact, 
It's what he came to die for, which means he draws closer to you when you come to him with a passion that you feel like you need to do this and say, I can't even believe I'm bringing this to you. I'm so repelled by it. How are you not going to be repelled by it? Well, God is repelled by sin, but because of Christ, he brings us in. He pulls us in. He understands where we're at. He understands the weight and the influence that sinful passions, that worldliness has on our lives. But he's not repelled by us. He pulls us in closer. You need to imagine that what scripture tells us about the God of the Bible is true. You want to imagine how God might change and sanctify your desires when you go before him with them. By the way, he might even grant some of them. But whatever he grants or doesn't grant, what you really want is for him to grant you reordered desires because that is what's causing your passions to war inside of you. What you really want is peaceful passions that invest themselves in the glory of God and the good of others. That's what you really want, and that's what God's going to grant you when you don't withhold those things, but you bring everything to him. Because didn't God give us passions and pleasures? Are passions and pleasures automatically wrong? Should they be avoided at at all costs? Of course not. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, all true pleasures are authored by God. He created passion and pleasure. We read in the Psalms, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is nobody that understands and desires passion and pleasure in the best possible sense of the good that it does to cultivate joy and life and affection for Jesus inside of us like our heavenly father. Nobody's more keyed into that. Nobody's more desirous of that. You don't want those things as much as God wants those things for you. But if we don't treat God like a good father then we're gonna treat others like enemies. Because our passions aren't being reordered through the power of prayer which refashions and reshapes your heart to see God in the glory of his extravagant kindness and this lavish generosity that he has towards you. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Let me go back because he says but in everything In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we bring these things that we're unsure about, God, I don't even know if I should have this. I don't even know if I should want this. You work this out. You grant to me what you think will be best for me. Change the shape of my prayers in the process. Change the things that I even ask you for. But when I ask you for everything, when I bring these things before you, begin to shape the desires in my heart. Because those desires, what James is telling us, ultimately have an effect on the people that are sitting to the right and left of you. Because it causes fights and quarreling. So don't hold anything back from your father in heaven. Don't hold anything back. I remember a friend of mine, and we'll be done, 
Um, really, the guy was really one of my first mentors, and he was this dude from Kenya, and um, just this brilliant kind of theologian guy and a pastor. And uh, I remember one time I was at his house, and he had his laptop up, and he had a, he had the, he had a picture of like some I don't know some some BMW. I don't I don't know anything about cars, you know the the 916i or whatever, you know. And um, I'm like, oh man. I'm like, I mean, is that, is, is that your car? Like, what are, you, what are you doing with that 916i or whatever? And he goes, he goes, no. He goes, I just keep it up on my, my screen. I said, well, why? He goes, because I've always wanted it. I go, oh, man. I go, well, I mean, are you like, are you gearing up to get that thing? You know, you're putting some pennies in the piggy. Like, what are you doing to get up there? He goes, oh, no. He goes, I, he goes, I, I, could, I could get it. I go, okay. I go, I go, but you're not. And he goes, well, he goes, when I moved to America, and even before I moved to America, this was something I wanted so bad, and I thought if I was ever able to get in a financial situation to afford it, it was going to be one of my purchases. And I realized after I got here and after I prayed through it and as the years went by, and I realized I could actually afford it, um, God had realigned it in such a way and put it in a particular place in my heart where my desire for it had changed because I saw some of the danger that it might produce in my heart. And I said, well, that's interesting. And I said, so what are you doing with it now? He goes, well, I just keep it up on my screen to remind me of that so that I don't fall prey to that passion becoming a pleasure that God doesn't have for me. What an amazing thing. He can afford the car. It's not going to put his family in a, in a bad situation. It's not going to put him into debt. Dude makes plenty of money. But he has chosen to not allow that thing to have a place in his life that would cause him to become a slave because he sees it as a passion that will not help others, give God gl glory, and therefore not be good for him. And yet, he continued to bring it before God. And God used that as a way to change his heart and to commit and to communicate something to me that I've never forgotten. So we have a good father that wants us to come to him with everything, that doesn't want us to hold back anything. He wants our lives to move from prayerlessness to prayerfulness so that the good that he has from us, for us will be the good that we want from him and our prayers will be shaped that way and everybody around us is gonna benefit from it. You hear what I'm saying? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these really hard but gracious words, Lord, and the things that they surface in us. Lord, the passions that we have, the pleasures that we have. You gave us passions and pleasures and they're certainly not all bad, but they have um, potential to spiral and to, and to enslave us. And so, Lord, we don't want to be a church that has a bunch of unspoken or outspoken uh, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy towards one another. We don't want to be fighting and quarreling, uh, whether inside or coming on to the outside and affecting those around us, Lord. We don't want that to be characteristic of us, Lord. We want to be moved by wisdom, and wisdom draws us into seeing you, Father, as you are. So I pray that even today as we go home and we think about those things, all those areas in our lives that we maybe withhold from you, that we don't bring to you, Lord, that you would even today change 
Change the way we see you so that we approach you with a level of abandon. And we say, Lord, what about this? And take this. And Lord, I'm thinking this. And Lord, this is a desire of my heart. And it's going to lead us into so many different directions, Lord. You're going to refashion our hearts. And that's what we pray for, Lord, that these things wouldn't become weights and slaves and masters that we are slaves of, Lord. And so, Lord, do that work in us this morning and as we, um, as we leave, Lord, so that we can be a church um, that is not growing in covetousness and contentiousness, but growing in generosity towards one another because our passions and our pleasures are becoming realigned daily as we come to you, our good Father, in prayer, who didn't withhold the greatest thing from us. You didn't withhold Jesus from us. And so, Lord, because of Christ, Lord, all of those things in us can be re-engineered, can be redesigned, can be restored. So do that work, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.